Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hey, welcome to Red Rum Blonde. There's a case currently in the news that has really piqued my interest. A woman went jogging, disappeared, and was later found murdered. A man was caught, put on trial, and sentenced, but he proclaims his innocence. Nothing unusual there, right? But during his sentencing, his family came out in such full force to support him, they were even shouting at the prosecuting team. It was a crazy scene. There were a huge group of protesters in support of this guy. So when I saw this conflict, I wondered what the details were in this case. I mean, is this guy innocent or was he guilty? I decided to look into it. So this week, I'll explore the murder of Karina Vetrano and the conviction of Chanel Lewis. Trigger warning, I will be discussing rape. The story started when 30-year-old speech pathologist Karina Vetrano went for a run on August 2, 2016. Now, normally, Karina would jog with her father, Philip, a retired New York City firefighter. Actually, he was one of the first responders at Ground Zero on September 11th. So when the time came for their run in the late afternoon, this time her father stayed home due to some back problems. And perhaps he had some kind of sixth sense about the day because he urged his daughter not to run alone. But like daughters do, she insisted that she would be fine. Around 5 p.m., Karina was last seen near Spring Creek Park, which was just less than a mile from her home. However, she never returned from that run. And when she didn't answer repeated calls from her father, he turned to their neighbor for help, who just happened to be a New York City police chief. Together, they gathered a search party. And sadly, her father was the one to find her body around 11 p.m., She was about 15 feet off the trail, covered in bruises and scratches, and it looked like she'd been sexually assaulted. And the details of her autopsy are really disturbing. Karina had suffered an atrocious attack. It looked like she'd been initially hit on the head with a rock, and once she was down, she was dragged from the trail, as evidenced by the grass still clutched in her hands. Karina fought this guy hard. In fact, she bit him so hard that her teeth cracked. 
After sexually assaulting her, her assailant strangled her so violently that he left a handprint on her neck. DNA was pulled from under her fingernails, her back, and on her phone, which was located nearby. So having DNA seemed like a very hopeful aspect to investigators, of course. And you would think this would have produced some hits. But after examining over 600 DNA samples, investigators were no closer than they were from day one. They had no hits. Karina had graduated from St. John's University with a master's degree in speech pathology. She lived in Queens, really close to her parents. Working in Manhattan, Karina worked as a speech pathologist with autistic children. And in addition to that work, she wanted to be a writer. She can be seen in a short film that was based on her writings, directed by her friend Petros. I think hearing that she worked with autistic children really shows that she had a generous soul. And it was less than a week later when another similar attack occurred. On August 7th in Princeton, Massachusetts, the body of Vanessa Marcotte was found. The 27-year-old was the only child of John and Rosanna Marcotte. And she was born in Massachusetts and had graduated with a bachelor's degree in communications from Boston University. From there, she worked at a startup in Boston called Wardstream while simultaneously working at Vistaprint. And then shortly after, she started at Google in New York City working as an account manager. And even though her job brought her to New York City to live, she still regularly went to Princeton to visit her mother and aunt. Vanessa, just like Karina, also kept fit by jogging. On August 7th, she left her mother's house in the early afternoon for her run. She'd planned to head back to New York later on in the day. But it was several hours later and she still hadn't returned, so of course her family became worried and they notified police. And just like Karina, she was found later that night, around 8 p.m., less than a mile away. And the details are just as disturbing. Her body was partially clothed and had been burned on her face, hands, and feet, possibly as a way to hide her identity. Her nose was broken and her throat had been crushed. The cause of death was strangulation. She was also sexually assaulted with DNA found at the scene. Her phone, earbuds, and clothes were all missing, leading investigators to think the assailant may have taken them as trophies. And Vanessa, too, put up a hell of a fight with her attacker. A witness had seen the young woman at the Mountainside Market that afternoon, and she was seen on her phone around 1 p.m. A different witness recalled a car that seemed to be following Vanessa. It had actually turned around and followed her onto Hubbardston Road, where she was walking. The attack is believed to have occurred between 1 and 3 p.m. So naturally, many worried that these two attacks were related. Both women were attacked while jogging, had been sexually assaulted, and these attacks occurred barely a week apart. And there was the New York connection. Both assaults were believed to be perpetrated by a stranger. In both cases, money was put forward for rewards, and the police reached out to the public for any help they could provide. Now, eerily, each case would bring forth a suspect roughly six months later, but they were, in fact, not related. So let me first tell you what happened in Vanessa's case before we get back to Karina. A tip line was set up for Vanessa, which garnered about 1,300 tips. 
Now, each one was investigated, which is a long, painstaking process. Police also stated that they were looking for a dark SUV that had been parked near the area where she was found. On February 23, 2017, District Attorney Joseph D. Early Jr. released a statement saying DNA had been sent to a lab and a profile of the killer who had been created. They theorized that the suspect was Hispanic or Latino, late 20s to 30s, with an athletic build and short to shaved hair. And he stressed that this man would have had visible injuries related to the attack, like scratches. It wasn't too long before a suspect was apprehended. And that day occurred on April 15, 2017. 31-year-old Angelo Colon Ortiz of Worcester, Massachusetts, was arrested placed on a $10 million bail. He was charged with assault, attempt to rape, and murder, and he pled not guilty. So this guy was nabbed when a state trooper had seen him driving a vehicle matching the description of this dark SUV. The state trooper made note of the license plate and the next day went to the residence of Colonel Ortiz with another officer. They didn't have any trouble getting a voluntary DNA sample, and a match was made. The man, originally from Puerto Rico, was a married father of three who worked for FedEx, and he had no criminal record. But his neighbors said he often made crude sexual comments. Co-workers also back up this claim. On the day of the murder, Colon Ortiz was not working his normal shift. While these two attacks seemed similar, each had its own killer. In August, police released a sketch to the public of a man who was seen in the area where Karina was found. This man had been seen running out of the weeds near the Belt Parkway. So Crime Watch Daily, the show that was started by journalist Billy Jensen, aired surveillance video of Karina running minutes before she was killed. If you're unfamiliar with Billy Jensen, he's that true crime journalist who helped finish Michelle McNamara's book about the Golden State Killer called I'll Be Gone in the Dark when she unexpectedly passed away. So he puts an immense amount of time, effort, and even his own money into help solving cases. And if you want to learn more about him and his efforts and the start of Crime Watch Daily, I highly recommend his audiobook called Chase Darkness With Me. I've been listening to it, and honestly, for a while, I haven't been listening to podcasts because this thing is so interesting. And what this guy has done is so impressive. He kind of makes you want to do more as a person. Sorry to go off on a tangent, but I have so much respect for Billy Jensen. And he also has a new podcast with Paul Holes called The Murder Squad. So anyways, back to the case. Karina's family went so far as to create a GoFundMe page seeking $250,000 to be donated as a reward for information leading to this killer's identity. They also knew that using familial DNA might solve this mystery. So familial DNA looks at individual DNA components, and it creates a kind of profile. And that is then compared against another sample to see if it's a genetic match. One can then find DNA matches in a family and help track down a suspect. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was used in the Golden State Killer case. The Vetranos pushed to get laws passed to let this process be used since so many companies don't allow it. And finally, on February 4, 2017, there was an arrest. Police brought in 20-year-old Chanel Lewis from Brooklyn. He lived in a housing project 
less than three miles from where Karina's body was found. And like the killer of Vanessa Marcotte, this guy had no previous criminal record. But he, too, was not such an upstanding citizen. Apparently at school, he threatened to, quote, stab all the girls due to his notorious hatred for women. And since he was a minor at that time, he was just taken into custody and released. And so in addition to hating women, he's also not too cool with white people. He had instigated several racially motivated attacks. He refused to talk to white detectives when he was brought in for Karina's murder. Neighbors describe him as mentally unhinged. He also had a history of trouble in Spring Creek Park where Karina jogged. One incident was urinating in public. And there were a couple of times that he was seen lurking around cars carrying a crowbar. He was familiar with the park, but it wasn't known if he had ever met or had even encountered Karina before or not. So knowing this present-day situation and how adamant his family is in declaring his innocence, I was a bit shocked by what they said about the day of the murder. That day, he had argued with his family and left the house. His mother said when he came back, he looked disheveled and had torn clothing. So certainly not complete evidence of guilt, but it doesn't look too good, does it? Lewis told his mother that he'd been mugged by a group of guys. But there's no police record or anything like that, so either it wasn't reported or it just didn't occur. The day after the murder, his father took him to the emergency room due to a hand injury and scratches and cuts on his upper body. So once again, no proof that he did it. You know, it may fall into this mugging claim. Or these scratches may have come from the fight that Karina put up. Chanel Lewis was charged with one count of second-degree murder. The trial began on November 5, 2018. Lewis pleaded not guilty. Karina's father testified about finding her body. He said he let out a wail like he's never made before when he found her, which is so heartbreaking to hear. He then recounted how he stayed home due to his back pain, but he felt like something was wrong around 6 p.m. He said, I continued to watch the news and eat my dinner, but as every moment went by, that feeling got stronger and stronger until it was 6.27. So I called her 6.28. I called her at 6.30. I called her and she didn't answer. So I yelled and I screamed. Then he went to look for her. Initially, her phone was found first by a search party that had been assembled. And then Philip noticed an area of weeds that was flattened out. After walking about 25 feet into that area, that's when he found his daughter. And if that doesn't break your heart, I don't know what will. I can't even imagine losing a child, much less finding their dead body. And that's such an awful image to have in your head of your child. On November 9th, the jury watched the videotaped confession of Chanel Lewis confessing to the murder. However, in the video, he claims he didn't sexually assault her. Also during the trial, a forensic biologist testified that his DNA had a one of a trillion chance of anyone else sharing that genetic profile. And let me tell you how this trial ended in a hung jury. And this was due to them not being able to decide if the DNA was contaminated, as the defense claimed. Lewis's lawyer said the investigation was sloppy and that the medical examiner didn't check for DNA on any other parts of Karina's body except her neck and nails. One of the lawyers, Robert Mahler, 
not Robert Mueller, as in the news, argued that Lewis's DNA could have been on Karina due to transference. You know, for example, if they're both in the park and they touch the same surface at any point. He also stated that Lewis told police he drowned Karina in a puddle, but she died by strangulation. In the video confession, Lewis asks for his mom, and he watches cartoons, which is really indicative of his childlike mentality. In fact, he graduated from a school for kids with learning disabilities. And this strategy worked on the jury. One juror said it was always in the back of his mind, all these cases where the wrong person is put behind bars for a crime. Lewis was held for 11 hours in police custody and four more in an interrogation room. So I think this is where doubt comes into play. And I agree with the juror. There are so many cases where someone is not mentally competent and coerced into a false confession. I mean, how there's cases of people that are mentally competent and they've been tricked into confessing to something they didn't do. I mean, I can't even imagine what I would say or do after being stuck at a police station for that long. But at the same time, I know that this is a really good tactic to get a legit confession out of someone. The judge declared a mistrial and scheduled a retrial for March of 2019. After deliberating for five hours, the jury came down with a guilty verdict. They found him guilty of first-degree murder, second-degree felony murder, and first-degree sexual abuse, which could make him face life in prison without the possibility of parole. And just days before the jury deliberated, an anonymous note was sent to the Legal Aid Society and prosecutors. The letter claimed that it was written by a cop who felt that Lewis was targeted for the crime because he was black. And it stated that at the beginning of the investigation, there were actually two white men that were suspects. Police had collected DNA samples from about 360 black men in Queens and Brooklyn. Those results were entered into the local DNA index system, which was maintained by the city's medical examiner's office. But it wasn't until about six months later when Lewis's DNA was obtained and they found that match. Lieutenant John Russo had seen Lewis walking around Howard Beach and just always thought he looked suspicious. And when he saw him walking around again the next day, he called police. However, Lewis didn't have anything on him, but Russo continued to be very suspicious of Lewis. When Russo ran into him a year later, he's the one that suggested police look into him for a possible connection in Karina's case. They got a DNA swab, and Lewis was arrested. That same day of sentencing, Karina's best friend received a death threat on Instagram, which is really unfortunate because that's not helping anything. At the sentencing hearing, Kathy Vetrano, Karina's mother, addressed the judge while holding her daughter's white sneakers. Karina's father and two siblings also gave impact statements. Her father said, The anguish of finding your baby bruised, dead, and unable to help her. That monster killed four people that day, and three of us still walk the earth as zombies. The judge said it was a lose-lose situation for both families. Lewis simply stated, I'm sorry to the family. I didn't do this. The anonymous letter claimed that there was also misconduct before deliberations, according to a juror. Coupled with this problematic atmosphere of the confession, it really does cause doubt. But the DNA evidence, I think, is what sways me. 
because I can't see them waiting six months to just pin it on an innocent person. I mean, they could have done that from the start. And if they only took DNA from under her fingernails and neck, as the defense claimed, then it's not going to get there by happenstance. He would have had to have had up-close physical contact with Karina. But I am really bothered that he might not know right from wrong, and I'm not sure if prison's the right place for someone like that. There's just really a lot of unanswered questions, even after researching the case, but I do agree with the judge that both families have lost. I would like to know a lot more about why police initially suspected two white men, but I couldn't find out any more information about that. So needless to say, the deaths of both Karina and Vanessa put female joggers on high alert. Many women altered their routines after the incidents. And as a female, this is something men really don't have to do. Not trying to get on a soapbox or anything, but it's true. I remember riding with a friend in a car one night, and she saw a guy jogging at night and proclaimed, wow, what must that be like? Because, you know, as a woman, you do have to be on your guard 24-7 and pretty much all your surroundings. And it's not something men have to worry about as much. I love the shit out of Detective Paul Holes, but I do have a beef with something he said on his podcast the other day. He mentioned the incident about the male jogger who was attacked by a mountain lion and fought it off. And then he said something about the area where he jogs, a mountain lion has been spotted. And how he probably wouldn't hear it because he wears his headphones. And I remember thinking, wow, what's it like to be able to jog with headphones on? Now, don't get me wrong. I love Paul Holes. But if he were a woman, he wouldn't make that statement so easily because it's dangerous for us to jog while wearing headphones. I mean, just think about it. And that's a sad statement. Women can't just freely walk around. We have to constantly be on guard for some kind of attack. I mean, I'm not getting on men, but it's just different for women. And that's sad. This guy, think about it. This guy is a detective who deals with attacks on women, and he can jog with headphones on with no worries other than wildlife. And it's not like that for women at all. And sometimes I look back on times when I walked alone on isolated trails and I think, well, that was stupid. But it shouldn't have to be that way. As a woman, I shouldn't have to worry about that shit or think I'm stupid. It should be safe in the world, but, you know, of course it's not. I know, because life isn't fair. That was the murder of Karina Vitrano. I'll try to keep you updated on both cases because Vanessa's offender still has to be sentenced and I'm sure Karina's will probably appeal. I do have an update on last week's case of Anna Delvey. Delvey, whose real name is Anna Sorokin, was found guilty on eight charges, including grand larceny. However, she was found not guilty on two charges, a second account of grand larceny, and the one of stealing over $60,000 from her friend for that Morocco trip. And that one sucks. Remember, her friend wasn't rich at all. She only had about $400 in her bank account. So she defrauded rich people, but on this count, she was found innocent. So I really feel for that woman. Anna faces up to 15 years in prison, and her sentencing is scheduled for May 9th. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, because every subscription helps get it out there. And please join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. I want to welcome new members, Anna Isabel. Amy, Roxanne, Nikki, and Zoe. Thanks for joining, guys. The group is growing. So in the meantime, keep up with me via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and definitely check out Billy Jensen's new audiobook. Like I mentioned before, it's so good. 
But man, get your tissues out. This one made me cry. And check out his new podcast with Paul Holes called The Murder Squad. I don't have any hate against Paul Holes. I love him to death. They're doing some great things to help solve some cold cases. It's one of my new favorites, and I have so much respect for those guys, even if Paul Holes does jog with headphones on. Thanks for listening, and catch you next week.